And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And yet again, my favorite part of the show. Love doing the interviews. Believe it or not, contrary to what many of you think, I actually do not like listening to myself talk. I actually never listen to my own shows. Uh, Only time I do is if I'm reviewing an interview, just because I want to hear what the people have to say. So it could not be happier to have this fellow back on. Uh, Incredible success that they've that they've you know, produced here in a very short period of time. And it's because they do the actual work. They're not agents of hyperbole and nonsense. They do the work. They talk about the facts and they give you the numbers. So without further ado, my old buddy Doomberg, welcome back to the show, pal, and thrilled to have you back on. Zach, it has been too long since we've last chatted and I really appreciate the uh, invite to come back. Um, one of my favorite shows to both be a guest on and to listen to myself. So um, looking forward to what I know will be a rigorous discussion because Lord knows there's plenty of things in the, in, in the, in the news cycle right now that is uh, catching many people's attention. Oh, my goodness, man. And it feel, I, I saw a tweet you put out recently where you said decades and minutes. And, you know, you, you and I both know what, what, what you're referencing there. And it just does feel like that. It feels like we're reaching this point of 10 to 15 years of nonsense. The bill is coming to us in a very condensed and expedited fashion. Um, And what I, what I want to come right out of the gate as, because it is so pertinent to ever, all the work that phenomenal work that you guys have done way out ahead of the curve. Um, But, you know, I, I think it's prescient and everybody's in mind is I wanted to hear from you about the implications and the politics and the all of the background behind what we saw happen to the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, I know you've been talking about it a lot. There's massive misconceptions about what's going on. For instance, I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong, just so people know, right, we are proprietors of truth here, um, or advocates of truth, I should say. And <clears throat> there, there was a, there was a clip that everybody was throwing around about Biden saying, you know, we're going to take care of Nord Stream too. And everybody's like, Oh, Biden, the Biden administration blew it up just for the record. Okay. It was the Nord Stream one pipeline that ruptured, correct? Yeah. So why don't I dive in a little bit? Because this is a complicated story. And in fact, um, the decades and minutes that you referred to is actually the title of the piece we published just before you and I sat down to record this. And um, it is on this topic, um, exactly. It is about the ramifications of the sabotaging of both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. So maybe if you don't mind, I'll give a little background and and we'll dive in. You Um, bet. So um, the piece that we wrote opens with the analogy, at least that struck us, uh, to 9-11. So for for most people, 9-11 became, quote, 9-11 when the second plane hit, right? Um, when the first plane hit, there was a lot of confusion. Um, I remember distinctly watching the Today Show of Katie Couric and Matt Lauer, I believe, and um, there was, you know, some thoughts that maybe it was a propeller plane or a small jet, or maybe the pilot got confused and maybe it was an accident. And then 17 minutes later, with you know the 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 um, one of the towers burning, Flight 175 crashes into the tower on live te- television. Like I'm sure you remember where you were um, when that happened. And um, same thing happened to us when we saw this story of the two pipelines, the twin pipelines, one might say. Um, on September 26th, news broke in the morning that Nord Stream 2, which is the new pipeline, had not yet been put into service but was gasified, so it was pressurized uh, with natural gas. 
Um, this is a very controversial pipeline. This is Putin's uh, attempt to circumvent land pipelines that go through Ukraine, where there happens to be a war right now. Um, Germany was greedily hoping to get this natural gas directly and, and um, viewed this as a key pillar of their entire economic model, to be totally honest with you. Um, Nord Stream 1 um, suffered, uh, sorry, Nord Stream 2 suffered a, a catastrophic drop in pressure uh, early in the day, um, you know, um, Eastern Standard Time. And parallel to Nord Stream 2 is the pre-existing Nord Stream 1, which has run for a decade, something like 50 billion cubic meters a year, um, and is a critical energy artery connecting um, Russia to, to Germany. So when we heard news that Nord Stream 2 had suffered a catastrophic pressure drop, um, there's a lot of confusion. Hey, maybe this is a false reading, or this is a new pipeline, so maybe there was a design flaw. Um, but then, hours later, um, we saw the second headline cross the Bloomberg, which is Nord Stream 1 was also ruptured. And in that moment, just like for me personally, the moment I saw that second plane go into the towers, you knew you know, this was a deliberate act, and the exact same realization for the destruction of these two twin pipelines um, occurred to us in a very familiar way, sort of a, a PTSD moment for us from 9-11 because it was a, a traumatic experience for us and for everybody listening, uh, I'm sure. Um, the consequences of the destruction of these pipelines, because the reports seem to indicate that the damage is very extensive and given the sanctions environment that we currently are in, it's highly unlikely they're going to be repaired. And the longer they go without being prepared, the more they get corroded. Um, if these arteries are cut permanently, the ramifications to the geopolitical order, and frankly, the substantial increase in a nuclear war um, have just been phenomenally dialed up. And, and much of the mainstream media, traditional media outlets aren't covering it. Um, and to the extent they are, they lead with the assumption that Putin blew up his own pipelines. We were very careful in our piece not draw any conclusions as to what happened and to speculate on potential scenarios, labeling such speculation for what it is, you know, um, your best guess with limited information. And I think one of the things that makes Doomberg special is um, we try our best to uh, lay bare all of our assumptions and to speak as accurately and correctly as we can in all of our pieces. And this is a really, really big deal. It's still developing. So for the, you know, by the time that people listen to this recording, new news may have broken, for which you know Zach and I are currently unaware of. Um, but this is a big, big deal. It it, it is, <clears throat> and I want to I want to get to the implications for Europe going forward. But before we do that, and, and just be forewarned uh, for the listeners out there, I, I want to step into the speculation realm. And I want to I want to preface it with that just out of my own intellectual curiosity, because I, I'm sure you have been Doomberg have been probably, you know, racing mentally, trying thinking about all the different implications, thinking about who is to benefit from this. And I will admit that when I first started looking this over, I thought my immediate thought went to Putin just because I think that. You know, the worse the energy flow gets into Europe, the more leverage he has. And feel free to correct anything that I'm saying right now um, <clears throat> that I believe as it relates to Ukraine, he is pot committed. Right. Uh, he broke it. He owns it. And I kind of now I could be proven wrong. I'm not a geopolitical expert, but I kind of think that the only way that you get a Putin back or Russia backing out of Ukraine would be Putin getting taken out. And and again, feel free to disagree with any part of this. Um, but then I, you know, 
that also seems a little uh, it seems maybe a little too obvious who who would have anything to gain from that action other than Putin and then I saw a really interesting I can't remember who it was I should have taken notes on this but there was a I want to say it was like a Norwegian some former PM showed a picture of the gas line leak and said thank you USA when you're looking at this, and again, we're, we're in the realm of speculation here, and, and I want to be very careful, um, but who else would have anything to gain from this? And and like you said, that was kind of the way I thought about it. The likelihood of those two things, you know, one losing pressure, the other one rupturing on the same. I mean, come on, right? There had to be something. Yeah. Well, it's very clear. It's sabotage now. Yeah, right, right. Okay. So who has something to gain from this other than Putin? Uh, the U.S. does. Um, and many people, um, you know, would be uh, angered at the suggestion. We did not suggest it in the piece. Um, but okay, let's take a step back. Um, what does Putin truly have to gain by blowing up two pipelines that basically cost more than $10 billion each to construct? Um, just two weeks before this happened, Putin was quoted in many stories, Reuters and Bloomberg, we quoted him in the piece, as saying, if you want to solve your energy problem, just give the go-ahead to open Nord Stream 2. We stand ready to supply. The pipeline is ready. Turn on the taps. This is a choice. Your energy crisis is a choice. And two weeks later, they're destroyed. Um, monetarily, U.S. LNG exporters are going to make a lot of money because these pipelines uh, were destroyed. Now, again, I'm not accusing the U.S. of doing it, and I'm not accusing Putin of doing it. I personally have no idea who did it. And one of the phrases that we used in this piece, um, which has done very well for us, is in the absence of knowledge, speculation is a measure of individual psychology. So lots of people are laying bare their own biases by jumping to conclusions with no idea what they're talking about, and we refuse to do so. Um, the overlap in the Venn diagram of people capable of doing this and people benefiting from it is pretty small. Right. So I actually, I think Peter Zihan had a very well-balanced video on this on YouTube that I saw in the moments after this, you know, the news became reality, you know, 9-11 happened. Um, <clears throat> many people um, in Eastern Europe don't like Nord Stream 1 and 2 and have hated it from the beginning. So maybe Poland did it. Um, maybe the U.S. did it. Maybe Putin did it. Um, the consensus in the Western media is that Putin did this. Well, that, um, he, but that's the consensus in the Western media for everything right now, right? I mean, and my point Trump, is, Trump I mean, it, if we have, you know, the the long list of things that were consensus that turned out not to be true is pretty, <laughs> pretty extensive. However, I don't want to veer into accusing anybody because I literally don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the points of the piece is um, nobody knows. And so if you're speculating with any authoritative, you know, declarative sentences, um, you're merely expressing your own bias. Now. What we did do in the piece was discuss the very dangerous hypothetical, however unlikely it might be, that um, Putin did not blow up the pipelines and the West pins the blame for blowing up the pipelines on him. Because as we said in the piece, um, this is a very, very interesting and dangerous little bit of game theory that is about to unfold, which um, nobody should be happy about. So in the scenario, which is a hypothetical, we have no idea, and I can't stress that enough, where, um, well, somebody blew up the pipelines. And so it, we can say for a fact 
that the party that blew up the pipelines knows they did it. You would agree with that, right? Yeah. And then we can also say with a fact that all other parties only know for sure that they themselves did not. So in this scenario where Putin inherently believes that he did not blow up that pipeline, and he said as much in his speech today, he overtly accused the U.S. and NATO of blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. If he believes that to be true, and he is pinned, you know, the blame is pinned on him, uh, does that increase or decrease the, the threat of nuclear war? Uh, increase. Radically. Yeah. It's a very dangerous time. So um, decades to minutes has two meanings in this piece. One, of course, is, you know, there's weeks where decades happen. Well, this is even more compressed than that. But the second is we ended the piece with reference to the doomsday clock. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. But, yeah. Um, you know, this is the... Um, the bulletin of the atomic scientists, you know, they put out this doomsday clock. How close are we to a, you know, a catastrophic, uh, full-blown nuclear war? And um, they're down to, I think their last update was we're 100 seconds away from midnight. Where midnight is it? Like, we're done. We have nuclear war. And uh, I, we argue in the piece that, um, that, that, that this event has a, a very high chance of pushing us much closer to nuclear war. And, and we reference in the piece how reckless Putin has been by overtly saying nuclear weapons are on the table. And if we, um, if we learned anything uh, from uh, Putin is when you know, we think he might be bluffing, he usually isn't. And so uh, it's a very dangerous time. Um, and uh, that's a, a scenario that let's give it a 20% probability. Well, you know, the, the expected value is probability times consequence. And the consequence here is very, very high. So. Um, the big loser in all of this, without question, uh, is Germany. So um, we could well, probably rule them out for doing it. Well, and this gets my question. So it's kind of a, a two-pronged question. And, and I, this is one of the reasons why I was really dying to get you on. Um, <clears throat> if I would think that as far as the U.S. is concerned, that Germany and the rest of the Eurozone having enough energy – to supply all their needs through the winter would be more important than sticking it to Putin. Uh, so I, I, first I'd like you to address that. And then uh, these pipelines being ruptured now, how much is that going to impact? What, what kind of percentage of sure. total energy are we looking at here? Sure. So first of all, I agree wholeheartedly. And to even ponder the possibility that NATO or Poland or a Western power did this, is unthinkable, uncomfortable, and we would be the first to say that we would love nothing more uh, than that not be true. And um, our preferred villain in the, the sabotaging of the Nord Stream pipelines is indeed Putin, because that eliminates the scenario that we uh, paint in the piece, which is if he didn't do it and is blamed for it, that radically increases nuclear war. So just for the record, we are deeply anti-nuclear war. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we would rather that the world be at peace and that um, capitalism reigns and that prosperity is spread across all of the world and humans flourish. And um, anybody who thinks that nuclear war should be threatened flippantly like Putin has done uh, or should be um, ignored when somebody who has a proven track record of not bluffing does so uh, is a fool because nuclear war is literally, um, you know, the global world going on full tilt. And who wants that? We don't want that. Right. Um, so we would love nothing more than to discover that Putin, having decided 
that um, Europe was never going to allow him to reopen those pipelines and perhaps um, worried about some internal threats, um, decided that he would blow up the pipeline so that there was no motivation for compromise with Europe and to harden his support uh, internally by blaming U.S. and NATO for, for blowing up these pipelines. And so when I describe possibilities, I do not want the audience to assume that we're assigning um, you know, likelihood to it. It's just a very, you know, our, our business is to highlight tail risk. And um, if, in fact, <clears throat> Putin did not blow up these pipelines and he is blamed for it, that's a, a very, very, very bad thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So to your, to your question, um, roughly 50 billion cubic meters a year of, of natural gas flowed through Nord Stream 1. And Nord Stream 2 had a similar capacity, but it never turned on. Um, and so now, you know, the vast majority of natural gas, not the vast majority, a huge chunk of the natural gas currently in storage in Europe to face winter 2022-2023 flowed through Nord Stream 1. Um, and that flow is now off. And, and do we're, we, when we say more, are we talking like who's responsible for 30, 40, 50% of the flow? So I'm going to quote round numbers because I don't have them before me, but Russia in general, I think is something like 40% of Europe's natural gas. That's the number I had in mind, yeah. And um, probably roughly split between Nord Stream 1 and overland pipelines. And so I just put a finger in the air and I'm willing to stand to be corrected, but let's say 20%. But more importantly, those daily flows that are mostly going to storage in the winter are actually, you know, primetime molecules that need to be burned to generate heat and electricity in the winter, which are now permanently turned off. And so our, our you know, the very easiest no-brainer, oh, my God, conclu- conclusion from this is this condemns Europe to an incredibly tough winter. So if we were, if we imagine a world where um, Putin dies of a heart attack overnight and um, after two or three days of struggle, a Western-friendly leader is installed uh, in the Kremlin, uh, a pro-peace, you know, um, pulls out of the Ukraine, uh, gives, you know, uh, all the land that they have conquered since 2014 back, and, and, and sues for peace with the West. Um, the, the destruction of these pipelines uh, makes that event uh, not a savior event for Europe. <laughs> like, it just condemns Europe to a fate of a molecular shortage that very few people are commenting on in the media. And I think one of the things that makes Newark resonate with people is we're willing to quickly draw those conclusions and say them out loud. Um, this is a very, very bad deal. Um, and by the way, um, it removes any inducement for either side to sue for peace. Like, this is catastrophic. This is going to, like, Putin can't sell gas to Europe. Europe can't buy gas from Putin. Um, the entire theory of the German... You know, economic uh, detente with Russia was that uh, the more interconnected we get with them, right. the more we can pacify Putin's geopolitical ambitions. Well, forget Putin, whoever replaces him. There is no, like the, a huge knot that tied, you know, Western Europe and Russia together has been severed. And if it doesn't get repaired quickly, it could be permanently severed. And so this is a, a, a truly, and you know, we're catching some flack for, um, for po- even pondering whether perhaps Putin didn't blow up these pipelines, you know, like it's very easy to just uh, label somebody who's trying to think clearly and limit themselves um, to what they know versus what they think they know. Um, you very quickly get accused of being sort of uh, somehow unpatriotic or pro-Putin. Um, all we've ever done is lay out um, strategies that would accelerate um, 
our, our advantages over Putin. But somehow, because they deviate from the current strategy, um, they, they get misconstrued as, as anything other than um, what they're intended to be, which is a well-thought-out, physics-based approach to a very dangerous situation. And, and we are the first to say we are anti-nuclear um, war. Well, and this probably feels like to some of the listeners like a shameless plug, but it, it truly it's one of the reasons why I, I am very judicious about whose research I read. Part of it is just for, you know, like, you know, sanity, you know, uh, uh, mental cleanliness, mental order, mental hygiene, if you will. Um, but also because there is so many charlatans out there and and I, I will emphasize again I don't mean that in really a pejorative sense I mean that there's a lot of people out there operating with 5% of the information that have 105% certainty on their view uh and you guys are the opposite of that that's why you know getting to know you on a personal level uh it's why I always chuckle when I hear people you know insinuate that you're coming at it from an angle that you have an agenda and, and that's why I can't recommend, recommend your guys' service enough. And so usually I wait to the end. But for those of you that are listening to this, first of all, go to at Doomberg on Twitter. Um, it's one of the voices that I trust that actually does the homework. And then I think that the sub stack, the subscription sub, sub stack, I don't think you guys are charging enough for it personally. Uh, but I, I'd, if you want real news and you want real data, we all know there's a massive shortage of it. And, it, you know, it's like you and I were talking about off the air. It's just not surprising to me that you guys, that business has proliferated so quickly uh, just because it is not biased. And, and I know that from firsthand from, you know, all the conversations that we've had. So anyway, I just had to stick that in there and I'm probably making you blush. But um, <laughs> anyway, so looking at and, and this is the thought that this is one of the other things that I want to get to on this, because when I saw this go down, uh, my first thought was, well, uh kind of take the up, take the potential of a bullet dodge or you know in Europe regarding the energy situation this winter off the table it, it, it is that a correct assumption on my part that it, this basically ices the deal that it's going to get nastier uh and that prices as obscene as they are am i wrong to say that this is kind of the nail in the coffin as far as this winter goes that it's going to get worse um it it it's dip let's put it this way <clears throat> The number of paths out of this crisis just shrank considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much LNG import capacity. Um, you combine all of this, of course, with the rolling series of bailouts that, as you know, um, when you have a shortage of molecules, you can't print them. The next question becomes how efficiently can you ration them? And the leaders in Europe seem hell-bent, which is always the way government leaders go on um, doing whatever they can in the short term that is politically expedient, of course, which means bailouts and stimulus checks and so on. And this, of course, uh, only serves to increase demand uh, much higher than it would otherwise be if market forces were allowed to dictate the most optimum use of limited molecules. And so, um, it's, it, look, it's Stoomberg, and we're often accused of being alarmist, except I would argue that our track record has been pretty good. Um, this is very difficult to path, you know, to chart any paths out of here. You know, the, I guess the, the only option left on the table is a incredibly and unseasonably warm winter. Um, and, and, and even, you're kind of betting on the weather at this point. 
Yeah, and even then, I mean, one of the one I I think one of the and you've written a lot about this, and you're one of the reasons that I know this. But I, I don't really think people really understand how this all works, right? The flow of those pipelines was relatively constant. And so the storage that everybody is citing in good working order, right, that the levels of storage have been an accomplishment, and I will take them at their word for that. I know that <clears throat> our analysts have said, hey, they, 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 well, Chase Taylor of Pinecone Macro said that he's been surprised at how much they've been able to stock up. Yeah. But the problem is, is you just cut the daily flow. Yeah. It's worse than that, Zach, on, across two dimensions. And this is where when we see government officials who should know better championing um, percentage storage levels as some um, calming piece of intelligence, we immediately understand that to be basically propaganda. Right. And, and we could therefore uh, internalize, well, why is the government issuing propaganda in this deceptive way. So there are two issues with storage that are never articulated when people boast about Germany has 90% you know, storage capacity filled, right? Um, so the first thing you have to understand is how much of your annual needs can you actually store? So um, in a classic example of an exception that proves the rule, the United Kingdom can only store 1% of its annual natural gas needs, believe it or not. Um, environmentalists... Uh, famously shut down a massive storage facility in their efforts to um, choke off all fossil fuel development. So what does it matter that the UK is 95% of its storage capacity filled? It's irrelevant, okay? Now, on the opposite end, Austria prudently stores something like 75% of its natural gas needs, or it has the capacity to. And it's at 90% full, so Austria is going to be fine. Uh, assuming they don't like share with their neighbors, yeah. Um, Germany, if it were at 100% storage, is something like 24 or 25%. And integrated across all of the EU, it's, I believe, 22, 23, somewhere in there. Like these aren't exact numbers, but you get a sense. Um, so if the EU is at, quote, 90% storage, but it only can store 8, 20% of what it needs, that's one dimension that is never articulated when they brag and boast about storage levels. The second one, which is probably more important, um, is there's a limitation to how much natural gas you can pull out of these storage facilities on any given day. And in the five coldest weeks of the winter, storage alone um, cannot um, be pulled, drawn upon uh, in a manner that satisfies but a fraction of what they need. And absent these flows, these steady, everyday land pipeline flows, it is just un, it's unfathomable that for many, many days, at the time where they most need it, they're not going ha- to be able to access enough molecules. Um, so what does that mean? That means shutting down industries, rolling blackouts, um, pick your favorite. It's a collapse of the energy structure in Europe. And so when I see people on Twitter who should know better with several hundred thousand followers, um, claiming that the energy crisis is solved because Germany has 92% of its storage full, um, they are either a victim of propaganda or a knowing proponent of it um, because it's just literally irrelevant. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like, it's very easy for the ill-informed to get caught up in the headlines. And then when you see people purposely putting out deceptive headlines, it makes you wonder, like, what is the agenda here? Well, it, <clears throat> the other thing, it, it really is... It's shocking to me how much of this truncated and incomplete thinking, like you said, it, it propaganda is a more, uh, 
I'm trying to think of the word here. It's a more logical conclusion to come to that this stuff is propaganda because it is so incomplete in terms of the way you're looking at it. And for some of our listeners, I want to I want to summarize this just to make sure I got it right, because this is my understanding of the situation. I, I, I think that you're you're you've just restated it. But if they were at 110 percent. Right of their historical storage, those that those storage facilities that it's a historical number. Meaning, if the daily flows that we are used to are rolling with no interruptions, then we're at a hundred percent storage. We're going to be fine. Yep. If you shut those daily flows off, the hundred percent storage may as well be fifty. It could be a hundred and fifty. It doesn't matter. It, right. And worse than that, the emptier the tanks get as the winter rolls on the rate at which you can pull natural gas out of those tanks um, decreases. Because the pressure drops, right? Correct. And so, like, I understand as a politician the need to uh, not induce panic. And so I will give them the benefit of of the doubt here and assume that this is a temporary panic assuasion exercise. Um, But the problem with doing that, and if you don't level with the population, is that you're not going to see the demand cuts that you need, the demand destruction that you need, in order to optimally ration the limited molecules um, that you have. And so um, if you talk to the common person in Germany today, and we have, well, obviously we haven't gone there because of COVID, but I used to travel to Germany multiple times a year, and I have many friends in Germany. And of the Doomberg readers that live in Germany, many of them reach out to us. And um, this is clearly anecdotal, but they tell us that the average person on the street um, thinks it's no big deal. And they just think, ah, you know, we'll turn the thermostat down a bit or, um, you know, um, it's being exaggerated in the media. Um, and I think um, if you have um, not prepared your population for a very difficult period ahead, and then suddenly that very difficult period manifests itself, you're risking significant social disorder. Um, and I, I feel pity for the people that... Um, get their superficial analysis from basically propaganda outlets and then plan their lives accordingly. Um, it's a big deal. Yeah. <clears throat> There's plenty of blame to go around. And, and so I don't want people rolling their eyes when they hear me bring up central banks. But I can't help but to think that virtually every issue that we have faced in the last 15 years coming out of the financial crisis was as simple as printing a pile of money and sticking it somewhere. And I can't help but to think that that has unjustifiably anesthetized people's minds to the potential of bad things occurring, right? It's almost like we're not seeing the odds clearly, right? Like we're, we're like, well, that's a bad outcome. So it's not going to happen. And, and, and all of a sudden we're facing like you've so clearly illustrated. And I think it's funny because you are by far and away the first person I heard using this term. And now it's everybody's favorite catchphrase. But this is a molecule problem. You can't print them. You can't create them. And I just can't help but think that this nanny type over, right, this this pacifier approach that central banks have had to no discomfort. We're going to print over every single problem. It's really, it's, 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 it's almost eliminated the tails in the average person's mind off the, off the, you know, the distribution, the, the potential outcomes. And it's it's crazy it it's sort of like it's sort of like to me uh looking at the broader markets right now and it's kind of like there was this consensus that yeah we're a bottom right everything's good right every well the nasdaq's down 33 for god's sakes it can't go down much lower than that 
have you have you spent any i haven't i haven't seen it in any of your writings but have you spent any time expounding on that do you think that we are blinder to tales today than we've ever been before because that's the way it appears to me but i'm also I've never been 40 years old managing $600 million before. So, you know, so I know that I look at things through a little bit different lens, but, but would you echo that sentiment? Doesn't it seem like we've become irrationally anesthetized to tail risks? Actually, I have a slightly different interpretation of the events and um, a framework that might help you uh, on a go forward basis. Um, Broadly speaking, when we analyze the macroeconomic picture, the very first question we ask ourselves is this, is the world in a period of relative primary energy abundance or relative primary energy shortage. And most investment professionals have only ever lived in the former. Mm -hmm. And that's due to the technical revolution in the shell patch, essentially. Um, Fracking and horizontal drilling has unlocked a bounty of primary energy that has allowed the world to convince itself that energy is just another commodity. And when there's excess energy, energy is in fact just another commodity. But when the world goes short energy, energy is the master commodity. Energy is the only thing you have to understand to be able to predict the limits of what's possible and to understand what must happen. And three things happened um, that caused the world to pivot from a period of primary energy abundance to shortage. First, ESG movement has been actively choking off supply. So the story of the UK's inability to store natural gas is just one small example of how the defund the fossil fuel movement has been extraordinarily effective uh, in chopping off the trunk of the tree to save the branches. Um, The second is um, the realization that many shale operators, you know, the, the companies that produce on the margin, and these are highly inelastic commodities, Uh, massive amounts of energy. You know, the U.S. went from uh, fretting about peak oil to becoming the world's largest producer (laughs) again, right? (laughs) Um, They quickly realized that they were burning a lot of capital because money was free, as you said. So the central bank's role in this is tangential. The central bank's role allowed for uh, the destruction of uh, billions and billions of shareholder value in the shale patch as, um, you know, um, exploration and production companies burned all this cash uh, in the name of growth that uh, didn't generate any uh, positive net present value uh, for the equity in the cap table. Uh, but then the third was the complete screeching halt to the economy uh, as a consequence of the uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And when you mixed all three of those things together, you have a historic underinvestment in traditional primary fuel development. Um, they're proposing nuclear power, shutting down nuclear power plants, not allowing for fossil fuel development. Um, Energy is life, and the amount of energy we produce dictates our global standard of living. And if you're going to shrink that, you have to shrink our global standard of living. It's just just physics. It's undeniable. Right. Fact. Um, And then the companies that filed for bankruptcy because of COVID in the shale patch, I'm just using that as the one example, but applied across the world. Um, they, They emerged from bankruptcy with less debt and new management marching orders, which is, return cash. And everybody who has ever spent five minutes in the commodity sector knows, uh, if, you want, if you want to make a lot of money, don't overproduce. And it's always tempting, and they always succumb to temptation to overproduce, and that's why there's cycles in the commodity sector. But when energy is short, energy producers make all the cash they'll ever make for a decade. 
And so you had the situation where U.S. Oil, and oil production, for example, is still a million barrels a day less than its peak just before COVID. Um, it's an incredible situation. Uh, oil at historic highs, even if they're off of the blow-off top of you know, the mid-120s, um, we're in a place where um, historically high prices uh, cures itself by uh, commodity producers uh, falling over themselves to produce <laughs> right. more. That's not happening right now. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and so it's a really, really interesting. Now you mix in a war, and you mix in a war with the largest energy exporter on the planet, and you mix in a war where the other side of that engagement is the largest importer of energy on the planet, and then they start sanctioning that energy as though they hold all the cards. And we've been very loud for a very long time that our sanctions policy against Russia is a catastrophic failure, predictably so, irreversibly so, the dumbest policy we've seen in decades. And again, this is not unpatriotic to point this out. We were pointing this out in the hopes that we could affect change. Like you can't, in the world where we cut Russia's energy exports by half, the price of those exports more than doubled and he makes more revenue. The only possible way for us to win the energy war against Putin is to flood the world with energy. Right. And we're doing the opposite. We're trying to cut his and we're stopping the development of ours, which is going to cause the price of energy to skyrocket because of the price elasticity of demand of those commodities and going to fill his coffers, going to fill his war machine. Like he's getting money from us because we're being stupid. So calling out the stupidity of our policies and laying out a, a thoughtful, true, empirically proven alternative is our patriotic duty. And that's what we've done. Okay, so I wanted to transition this conversation over to crude and not just stick on the on the LNG and that gas side of things. Um, one of the things I have noticed, and again, I I caught it in the periphery. I have a pretty bullish outlook on on energy prices and crude and that gas in particular for you know no, understanding there's going to be volatility and stuff. So, but one of the one of the things that I've been looking at, and I've seen several reports of this of production numbers in a pretty diverse spattering, you know, globally speaking, production numbers seem to be falling off. Are you seeing this? And, and if so, what do we ascribe that to? Is it, are the production numbers fall? A, are you seeing the production numbers? Again, I just have seen sure. this on the periphery, but B, what do we ascribe that to? Is that, is that demand destruction already occurring because of a global slowdown, which is hard for me to believe just looking at some of these other things. Or is this just a factor of, I mean, I know rig counts are dropping, crude's down to 80, which makes perfect sense. What, what, what do we make of the whole crude scenario? Yeah, so I, again, I have a slightly different view here on this and i um, happy to articulate it. Um, so um, trying to model the flows in highly inelastic commodities is very challenging, right? Yeah. So um, production might be slowing down, but demand might be slowing down faster. Right. And so oil could crash to 20 tomorrow. And... Um, We've observed something in the markets, and we, we have a pro tier at Doomberg, so we don't just you know um, have a subscription model for our articles, but we have a higher end tier for our sort of more sophisticated um, investors and, and um, family offices types. And, and we give them a monthly um, Zoom webinar. We call it the Doom Zoom. Um, and and we, just did, we just did one um, last week on a sort of a global overview of the energy markets. And in that um, webinar, which I'll share now with, with your audience, uh, we spent a lot of time detailing a really, really peculiar phenomenon in the markets that we think bodes ill uh, for the economy. So one of the challenges in comparing energy sources is they're all quoted in different units of trade, and they have different inherent energy content. 
So natural gas, coal, and oil. Let's just take them, right? Natural gas is quoted in dollars per million BTU. Coal is quoted in dollars per ton. And oil is quoted in dollars per barrel. How can you reasonably look at the quotes of those prices and draw any conclusions about the energy market? Well, you, you can't unless you correct it. And so we walked our pro subscribers through the manner in which to properly protect uh, across those two parameters. How do you correct for units of trade, i.e. put everything in dollars per million BTU? And then um, how do you correct for inherent energy content? So, for example, you might not know this. Um, a ton of Newcastle coal contains 24 million BTUs. And so if you want to put the price of coal, Newcastle, uh, in dollars per million BTU to compare it to natural gas, you just divide the price on the screen by 24. And a barrel of WTI oil has 5.8 million BTUs. So you take the price of oil, let's just say for round numbers, it's $58. $58 oil is the energy equivalent of $10 per million BTU natural gas. So once you correct for those two things, units of trade and inherent energy content, you can stretch the price uh, of those three commodities on a single chart and just read across and say what's selling at a premium relative to its energy content and what's selling at a discount. And an amazing thing happened a couple weeks ago, and this might surprise you. Correcting for energy, the price of coal is measurably higher than the price of oil. <laughs> now, what does that mean? So coal is a lump of rock that can only be burned to produce heat, which then does work, normally produces electricity. Oil can also do that, although it's considered a low-end use of oil. Oil is refined into diesel and gasoline, and the still bottoms are used for asphalt and greases. Uh, it feeds the petrochemical industry. The downstream value-add economic uh, you know, uh, attributes of oil are vastly superior to coal. You would agree? Yeah. Okay, why is coal more expensive than oil, and what does that mean? We think it means stagflation. It signals simultaneously a primary energy crisis and a lack for a need of value-added products. What is the definition of stagflation? Inflationary forces in the middle of economic contraction. Right. If the world doesn't care about oil and just needs rocks it can store in its yard so that it can burn itself through the winter and it doesn't really need refined value-added products, that tells us something. And for um, confirmation, we turn to another totally anonymous, first time we've ever seen it, price disparity in the energy markets. Are you familiar with what coking coal is? Yes. Coking coal, for the benefit of the audience, is used to make steel. It's not burned in a power plant to produce electricity. It's a higher value, higher energy dense, lower sulfur version of thermal coal. Um, and historically, until recently, thermal coal has traded at a premium, sorry, uh, of coking coal, the more higher value added, has traded at a premium to thermal coal. So if you want to make steel, you're going to buy a coal that has less sulfur, more energy, it's cleaner, it's been processed, and you pay a premium for that versus thermal coal. In fact, that spread is sort of a benchmark that's widely used in industry. That spread went negative, substantially negative, several months ago. Came on our radar, couldn't believe it. First time it's ever happened. So today, um, uh, coking coal, the higher value, higher energy, premium version of coal, is selling at $150 a ton discount 
to Thermocol. And Thermocol itself was only selling for $50 a ton two years ago. The discount to the higher value is three times the price of what coal was two years ago. This is further validation that the world needs primary energy. It doesn't need steel. What? Okay, so here, here's what I don't understand. <clears throat> and maybe me trying to rationalize it and understand it is the first problem because <laughs> rational thought uh, really doesn't assist uh, – when trying to analyze these situations as it has in the past. But but in my mind, if I'm running a municipality or a government and I'm looking at this energy crisis, I'm like, well, yeah, hey, uh, sure, this isn't the way it's historically done, but instead of buying the you know the thermal coal, uh, why don't we just buy coking coal and stick that into our power plants? Yeah, but that's what we thought too. Great question. It turns out a combination of supply chain friction, literally they don't know the suppliers and the procurers don't have the relationships, and also... Um, there are some differences. And um, so certainly I think you could blend a little bit in, but from our sources in the industry, and again, this is a question we hadn't contemplated because it never happened before. Right, right. Um, they can't just drop it in as a substitute. It burns differently. You know, these, we like to think of these power producers as just sort of um, Excel, uh, you know, cells in an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Um, but one of, our, one of the things we think we bring to the Doomberg work is we've actually had industrial experience. Now, while we know the metallurgical coal, the coking coal market very well, we've not actually spent much time visiting thermal coal plants. And I'm sure there must be something about the fact that it is different. It requires investment for us to use. And that difference is, is, is the distinction that matters because they're running full throttle. They don't have time to shut down their plants and do whatever perhaps minor retrofits they need. Now, eventually they will because, I mean, the arbitrage is closed. This is sort of a fundamental force of economics, as you know, better than anybody. Um, it can't be that coking coal sells at $150 discount per ton than thermal coal indefinitely. There's no way to trade that in our view, at least none that we have discovered. But forget about like the reasons why. Um, our main attention to these two very peculiar events is here's a fundamental thing you should do as an investor. When you see something that blows your mind away that is historic that's never happened before, it means two things. One, you don't understand what's going on. And two, if you can understand what's going on, you can gain an edge. Right. And in our view, our best guess, and there was an alternative hypothesis, which I'll explain it now, this coal to oil flipping, you know, coal becoming a premium product versus oil. We first thought that this was proof of the manipulation of the paper price of oil by the Biden administration. Because Lord knows, Joe Biden is an old school politician. And he wants the price of gasoline down before the midterms. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So our first, thought, our first thought was, oh, this is a financialization. This is the paper gold price, but applied to oil. And that physical oil was trading, in fact, at a premium. And that's true. All those things are true. Um, but that's the easy sort of political expedient answer. We thought about it some more. And then this coking coal, thermal coal uh, flipping of the spread we think tilts the balance of the evidence in favor of the stagflationary signals that we think the market is selling us, as opposed to proof of you know, manipulation of the paper price of oil, which, to be fair, the Saudis have all but accused the U.S. of doing. And so it's not like this is some conspiracy theory without merit. Um, and so when we first saw that disparity, by normalizing units of trade and energy so that we could compare coal and oil and natural gas on one chart, easy visual, um, our first thought was, ooh, we found proof that the paper oil, you know, the paper price of oil is being manipulated. 
Um, but it's very important in life as an analyst to not just uh, run with your, your first assumption. And so we actually spent four or five hours um, trying to brainstorm around what it could mean if that weren't the cause. Um, and so the whole point of nullification is, is if you can nullify all the other potential explanations, then the one you have fits the data. Um, in so doing, we uncovered this other possibility, which is basically the market is signaling simultaneously a primary energy crisis and no need for higher value-added products. Um, because there's only so many power plants in the world that can trans, you know, that can burn oil for power flexibly. And um, once you sort of fill those, the incremental demand for oil, which is where price is set at the margin, um, would indicate that there's no need for oil because we don't need the higher value add stuff and all of the power plants that could burn oil to make electricity are already doing so full throttle. And I think it's the same thing with coke and coal and coal. All of the plants that could blend 5%, 8%, 10%, without having to make any investment or doing that, because that, um, that's a huge arbitrage to try to capture. Um, but beyond that, it requires investment, and nobody's going to do it because they're running full throttle. They can't afford to shut down. The money's too good to stay open. And so um, the temptation to uh, settle on the sort of conspiratorial political explanation uh, gave way to what we think is a better hypothesis that explains most of the data. The other aspect of this that I, I'm not surprised by because this is how these things typically work that the war <laughs> the, the war on fossil fuels has created a pivot back to the most dirty polluting form of energy on the planet correct no question and i it and if you, you couldn't make it up Zach. You, like you literally couldn't you make, couldn't make it up you couldn't make it up but for those of us that watch this whole thing unfold it really is the brilliance and wonderment. It's one of the re this is one of the reasons why I do what I do. The, the way free markets work and the belief, especially in the political elite, that they can usurp or trump or bypass uh, the, the ramifications of free markets, that they can override the – you know, they can edit out the parts they don't like and just keep the parts they – whenever you hear that being talked about. The other funny thing, I think, is that staring down the barrel of this gun – all you hear them talking about are price caps, right? Doubling down on more idiotic policy. And <laughs> if these people are left in control, I'm, I, you know, obviously this is hyperbole. But if, the, if their push for green energy is uninterrupted, I feel like every major city in the world is going to start looking like Shanghai. Right. Like <laughs> with a cloud of coal, you know, coal uh, hanging over, hanging over everything. Um, has anybody have you heard? I, again, I know you dig into this much deeper than I do. Um, is there any sense or any feeling that there is a thaw in the flawed logic or, or yeah. all I'm seeing is doubling down? Is that not the case? So, um, yes and no. Well, I'll start with the yes. Uh, we coined a phrase several pieces ago called anti-logic. Thunberg's law of anti-logic, where uh, we state that um, uh, the current slate of Western leaders can be counted on to take the worst possible decision at every opportunity. <laughs> so, to your point, um, there will be price caps. There will be, ra you know, there will be uh, stimulus. You know, like uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, um, after a couple of pieces using the anti-logic phrase and um, pointing out some of the uh, silliness of our policies. Um, we did write one piece called Green Shoots of Logic. I saw that, yeah. Um, and um, we, we, you know, credit where credit is due. Uh, outside of Europe, uh, most of Europe is still crazy. Um, we are beginning to see sort of Western leaders look at what's going on in Germany in particular and say, huh, 
It's probably not good for my political career if that happens here. Um, so the, the, the most pronounced example, and uh, again, since we are um, ideologues and not partisans, we're capable of giving credit where credit is due, even when the person that we're giving credit to um, is sort of 95% of the time uh, making decisions and proposing policies that we would disagree with. And one such person is none other than um, the current governor uh, of California and, and future presidential candidate, Gavin Newsom. God help us and, all. And he, but look, I mean, credit where credit is due. He laid political capital down on the table to give Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant a much-needed multi-year extension. And he stared down the um, radical environmental wing uh, of his caucus and um, basically made this a vote of no confidence against him if they wanted to oppose him. And, and it passed bipartisan, overwhelming majorities. Um, Diablo uh, Canyon nuclear power plant has been saved. Um, credit where credit is due. Another politician with whom we would uh, agree with uh, infrequently, um, Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan, who is up for re-election against uh, you know, a, a popular uh, conservative businesswoman, um, Dixon. Uh, she looks likely to win that election. One of the reasons why she looks likely to win that election is she has been fighting hard to resuscitate uh, the Palisades nuclear power plant, uh, which was shut down uh, earlier this year. Um, and, and in so doing, um, she is acknowledging and taking on the more radical environmentalists uh, in, the, in the state of Michigan that um, there is no path to decarbonization without a, a renaissance in nuclear power. Um, there are no solutions in life. There are only trade-offs, yeah? Yeah. Um, and, and there are other green, green shoots as well that we're starting to see. You know, uh, just this week, our good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who's the president of Canadians for Nuclear Power uh, and has been the spearhead of a truly grassroots, um, you know, a citizen campaign to, to save uh, a nuclear power plant in Pickering, Ontario, uh, Pickering, Ontario, and just this week, the, the provincial government of Ontario, who happens to be conservative, um, agreed that they will not only extend the life of this plant for a couple of years, but the main reason they're doing so is to study how best to refurbish it for multiple decades. Um, and so Chris Kiefer is inspirational to us because it shows he's a medical doctor who started out as an environmental sort of progressive leftist that you would call it, and came to his own independent conclusion as a scientist that you literally cannot decouple human impact on the environment uh, from the desire of humans to flourish without a, a renaissance of nuclear, and then has dedicated much of his life uh, to putting skin in the game to try to win politically the old-fashioned way, like we used to do in this country, where it wasn't all just a team sport. People would consider positions and compromise, and you know, sure, it would be ugly, but it's not near as ugly as it was today. Um, and so when we watch people like Dr. Kiefer have a huge impact on the provincial electricity grid of Ontario. This plant was something like 10% of that grid was scheduled to shut down, would have been, placed, would have been replaced with fossil fuels. Um, good for him. And we lended our uh, platform to him. We wrote about this particular battle in one of our pieces and um, called Malthusian Malarkey. And, and, and we encouraged our, our readers to donate, and they did in, in volume, and he was very grateful and used that money well, and we have contributed to, to, to a sane decision. So, yeah, there is some hope for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> I, I guess the way I should put it is that even if you had – and this has been my fear from the beginning, you know, and, I, and, it, and you and I have spoken about this before. Um, this – 
well, there's so many things like that in society today, but uh, you know, the, the push on the ESG side and the push on the green energy side, it has become a religious endeavor uh, where we set aside all logic and facts and we push endlessly and blindly toward this, you know, uh, energy, uh, you know, nirvana, if you will, or, um, and kind of just ignoring all negative impacts. And I just, I, I get the feeling that even if you had that set aside, even if logic was embraced, even if science and as you've put molecules, right? Physics was embraced. You're still looking at, at, at a tough two to three years at the very least, aren't you? I mean, they, let's say they did something like, you know, let's say the, you know, the high priests of the ESG and, and green energy push spun on the dime and, and, and just embrace science and physics as it relates to the energy situation. The die is cast at this point, is it not? At least for a tough two or three year period. Uh, I'd say one year. I'm more optimistic. Yeah. I mean, again, a lot of the risk in the market is political risk. Um, And we've argued for many, many months that all Joe Biden needed to do was hold a press conference with the CEOs of all the major oil and gas and nuclear companies in the country and wave his finger at the camera and say, we're going to crush Putin with supply. We're going to do everything we can to get rid of red tape. The... uh, Ship after ship after ship of American energy is going to go to Europe. Um, And these fine executives have decided to work with my administration to temporarily flood the world with energy so we can crush Putin and crush his revenue. And at the same time, we're going to work to develop strategies that simultaneously optimize human standards of living divided by our carbon emissions. That act alone would probably have cut 30 or $40 a barrel off the price of oil and cut the price of natural gas in half. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, people talk about the Fed jawboning. The administration jawbones on energy, oh, and it's endlessly. in the other direction. Yeah. And so a big chunk of the price embedded in energy today is political risk. In fact, it's, it's just true. The price of primary energy fluctuates wildly based on Bloomberg terminal Headlines. Right. <laughs> At the margin, this is a political guess as to which way the wind is blowing. And so we think that a thoughtful, coordinated, bipartisan response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine that involves the intelligent assessment that you cannot win a commodity war by trying to stop your opponent from bringing their volume to the market, it's going to find its way to the market. The system of middlemen and traders and launderers is too extensive. The temptation to do so is irresistible. The only way, and anybody who's spent any time in industry knows this, and we have decades in industry, as you know, the only way to, to shrink your opponent's revenue is by attacking the price, not the right. volume. And so um, if I was a monopolist who was trying to put a competitor out of business illegally, um, what do you do? You flood the market. Well, they, and we've got this called anti-dumping, right? Right. We've got some precedent of this. I mean, yeah. OPEC, this is how OPEC handled shale back in 2014, early 2015, right. is it not? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And well, look, when we went to war in, in Iraq for the first time, the first Gulf War, James Baker, I believe it was, not, it was a big guy. 
uh, I think it was Baker. Yeah, flew around the Middle East and said, "Time to pump, boys," because you know we're gonna we're gonna put the screws to Saddam, and the world cannot uh, do without his oil in the current state. And so, for a very temporary period, we need you to flood the market with oil. I I think that one of the problems it'll be interesting to see because I remember the first time you and I had this discussion. And I am of the firm belief that this issue will get resolved, that we will come to our senses. And I think it's sort of a by hook or by crook type deal, right? Uh, Meaning that if people can't turn on their lights and they can't heat their home, uh, there will be riots in the street until those said politicians are thrown out and new ones that come in and rectify the situation are. Hopefully we do not have to get to that type of zenith in the in the in the in the public outcry or that type of you know uh, dramatic scenario and and all the pain that comes along with it i know that that's another thing i've seen people throw darts at you and i've received a few of them not nearly as many as you but where you're like hey at no point are any of us advocating or wanting hardship to come nobody benefits off that right but our job is to sit out there and and survey the field and and especially you know, with, with the people that you consult with and, and the readers and, you know, we're trying to inform people of what's going on. I'm trying to manage my client's assets through any storm and to keep them solvent and upright. Um, but when I look at the scenario, even if that pivot comes, I just, I, the, the, the fear I have, Doomberg, is what type of pain is going to create that capitulation? And then what's the fallout going to be? You know, what, in terms of you, you've got a church now, you got a religion with billions of followers, right? How, what kind of political turmoil will attack toward sensible energy policy create, right? I see, I see the potential for massive upheaval, upheaval and turmoil on both sides of it. Um, even if you get the quick pivot, you've got a, you've got a unindoctrinate your followers yeah, sure. in a very short period of time. And to me, I feel like that's the stickiest part of it. So two things. In all scenarios, the U.S. is in infinitely better shape than Europe, and we should, not, we should not allow our listeners to conflate what is about to transpire in Europe right. as to one of the potential outcomes here. Tomorrow, the U.S. can decide that we're not going to export natural gas, and we will have a bounty of natural gas in the U.S. to get through the winter. Um, we are an energy superpower. Um, we have a huge economy that requires a lot of energy, and so much of the energy we produce feeds that beast. But um, to the extent that we need um, other people's energy to uh, perhaps fix our mix, we have very valuable things to trade with them. So we are effectively net energy exporters um, with an enormous bounty of fertilizer and fresh water and great land and navigatable rivers and uh, huge natural gas deposits and and the technology to exploit them and neighbors to the north and to the south that that bring other very valuable things to the table. And so if we drew a circle around NAFTA, we have truly uh, an energy superpower, an economic superpower, and eventually we'll figure it out. Um, Classic U.S., you know, American saying is when we're done trying all the stupid stuff, we'll get the right answer. Churchill, Um, God bless him. But at the same time, we are also going to get in Germany, a vivid example of what happens when you screw everything up. And unfortunately, as much as, we, as we've been writing about German energy since last October, yeah. um, like, and it's playing out worse than we could have imagined. Um, at a minimum, at least, um, Germany's gonna be a great, terrible example for the rest of the world. And so they're doing the world a service by staying in their kayak as they approach Niagara Falls. And we're all going to stand on the sidelines and see what happens 
um, when a country impales itself in the uh, name of the cult of green energy, as you called it um, earlier. And so the only potential benefit to the German sort of national suicide that we're seeing is the rest of the world is going to get a good close look at that and then decide, um, do I want more of that or do I want less of that? And so from the U.S. perspective, um, we are both great for now and we're probably going to learn from what happens in Germany. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. And in closing, I, you, I've, you've always been kind with your time and I appreciate you for sticking over it. And I'll tie this up really quickly, but just leaving you with one last question. If we focus specifically on Germany, it, I, I agree with your assessment that it's a, and I, and I, I can't argue with it, that it's a, it's primarily a political issue. Um, <clears throat> the question I have is trying to get inside that, uh, the minds of those politicians and just trying to understand their frame of their frame of mind and, 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 you know, the, um, the constructs, right. The, 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 the frame, you know, the, the, oh, I'm just blanking on the terminology here, the framework, right. Of, of how they're yeah. making their decisions. Do, do you think that this is a situation where they're in too deep and they think if, if, if they acknowledge the problem as it currently exists, that it will only exacerbate it? Are they not seeing the existing problem? Do they not feel the vibrations on the tracks of the train coming toward them? Is this they're still too blinded by the by the religious ideology that they've adhered to? What what, what, what do you what do you think that? And I'm sure it's a smattering, right? I'm sure there are politicians over in Germany that see it plain as day. Um, are, are they in denial? What, 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 yeah. Is it denial? Is that what we're dealing with? No, I, we have we've given this a lot of thought, as you can imagine. And uh, the easy answer is to say um, this is all on purpose. You know, uh, World Economic Forum depopulation, uh, you know, um, global reset. And, and we've resisted that because um, we still, you know, there's insufficient data to reject an all hypothesis that incompetence uh, explains a lot of this. And so let me explain what I mean by that. You would never run for politics, right? You would never run for political Good office. Good God, no, no. I would never run for political office. Why? The gauntlet of personal destruction that you have to climb over in order to serve your community has gotten so toxic and dissuade so many talented people from running for public office. It's like asking if you want to swim in a sewer. Right. And it's not worth it. And here's why it's not worth it. Because if you're ethical, there's no money in it. (laughs) Now, if you're unethical, if you're an Nancy Pelosi and you're day trading with insider information based on uh, where the, the, you know, the, the political movements of a certain bill in Congress will dictate prices, um, serving in government is an enormous, I mean, you know, you could, you could spend your entire life in government and leave them a centimillionaire, uh, collecting, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year in government checks. Why? Because it's legal to inside trade. If you're like, I would never engage in these things personally because it, right. it makes me want to throw up to think right. about it. So you have this combination of a distillation of, um, only the subset of people that, um, are too incompetent to make it in the public world, in the private world, or m- more often, unfortunately, um, they have uh, a deep psychopathy that allows them to essentially fleece the treasury and fleece the public by monetizing their access to the public purse uh, in ways that they have purposely crafted to be um, legally acceptable, if not ethically very dubious, right? And so um, you keep doing that decade after decade after decade after decade. And when there is no shame, 
then you sort of have what we would call in the industry still bottoms, you know, mm-hmm. the people who can't be elsewhere creating their own money by actually creating value. <laughs> they literally just extract like, like leeches, um, taxpayer money for their own gain. And, and we have, let's be very clear. Like we have, um, normalized behavior that would have caused every, almost every politician serving in DC today to have resigned 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it, it, and it's bipartisan, like, let me be very clear, like, um, uh, Mitch McConnell's wife has deep ties to China. Right. And if you, if you dig, dig down that rabbit hole, um, you will become bewildered. Um, and so there's a combination of lack of competency and lack of ethics. Like it's just one giant money grab. Um, and so good people do not want to serve in government, good people with ethics. I would never serve in government. No. In fact, I would never speak to a, a, a federal uh, agent because, you know, um, all they have to do is interpret something you said as a lie and you could be charged with a felony. Right. If a federal agent shows up at my door because they don't like what I wrote about Doomberg, the first thing I'm doing is calling my attorney. Right. I could try to talk them out of it. It's become so hyper-political. It's very dangerous. So I do think, um, A, they're incompetent, but B, the second part of this, it's not just sort of competence and ethics. Um, I have seen firsthand when I was in industry and being in and around C-suite executives and board members and so on, um, these people live in a deep, deep bubble. Mm. Okay? And they go around, like essentially if you get high enough in a corporation, and this is what happened with me and one of the reasons why I left and started you know, my own business with my partners, um, is your job essentially becomes going around the world and speaking to people. Like very little of your work is actually like doing stuff. If you get high enough, and I was very high in a very large corporation that your listeners would know, um, your job basically becomes spinning yarn, you know, trying to motivate people, explaining your strategy. Um, I, I averaged probably 75 or 100 flights a year in the last decade of my corporate career um, because when you have, you know, an international executive type job and you have people in 15 different countries, um, they expect you to go there at least once a year. And when you go there, you have to put on a show and tell them how great they are and give a talk and so on and so on. So what happens to these people is two things. One, they say the same things so often that they actually believe it. Like they believe what they're saying because they've said it 400 times. And two, it's just a natural consequence of the environment. They get surrounded by people who will only ever tell them good news. Right. And so they live in a deep bubble. And I'll close with this, which is a line that we... Uh, we've come up with sort of internally. When you're living in a deep bubble, you are the last person to be able to see that a giant needle is coming your way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, explains Germany and its insistence on going over Niagara Falls in a kayak. Um, and it's not that they are trying to destroy their own economy. They believe in what they're saying. They believe that if only we double and triple and quadruple down on the same failed policies that literally got us here, um, we, they believe that their opponents are responsible. Like the, the, the economic minister of Germany thinks nuclear power is part of the problem of their energy crisis, not the obvious solution. He said this so often that he believes it. Oh and he's gosh. surrounded by people who only ever tell him, great job, boss. Right. Yeah. And so that's a very dangerous combination. And Occam's razor would say that explains much more of the variance than some grand collusionary conspiracy to destroy Western civilization. We're not ready to go there. It's a Pascal's wager situation. We're not prepared to bet against the existence of God. Um, uh, I don't want to live in a world where uh, a, a planned depopulation experiment uh, you know, uh, 
concocted within the G7 explains all the available evidence because that's not a world I want to live in. And so right. um, maybe I'm living in my own bubble, um, but uh, we do not see enough evidence to reject the competency and bubble um, hypothesis. So. Well, pal, I think that you're living in the opposite of a bubble. I think you're one of the few people that actually has their head outside the bubble and is looking at it for what it was. And can't say thank you enough for coming on, man. I always enjoy these chats and, and the insight. And for the listeners out there, look, if you don't have a Twitter account, get one just to follow him. And maybe you could follow me too. But <laughs> primarily, <laughs> give Doomberg a fall if you want to stay on top of this. It's at Doomberg. D- at Doomberg T. D- Doomberg T. Doomberg T. Yeah. Somebody's uh, squatting on Doomberg, so let's not send them some new followers. Yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, <laughs> Doomberg so T, T is in Twitter. Yeah. Yes, yes. Doomberg T is in Twitter. From that, they can get onto your Substack, right? They can get. A, they can do. do it's the all roads lead go, go through Twitter, correct? Yeah. So Twitter is our front end at Doomberg T. We have um, a crazy, crazy number of followers now, Zach. Since we last talked, oh, I've seen it, man. It's awesome. One hundred and eighty-six thousand followers as of today, which is insane. Uh, but our primary outlet for our work is at um, you know doomberg.substack.com, and I just want to say for the listeners, uh, it's very important to us that we are 100% subscriber supported. We take no ads and we accept no sponsors. Nothing wrong with those models, and I know that you know radio station you know, exists in those models. But for the type of provocative work that we do, we felt it was absolutely necessary that we be 100% editorially free to write what we want in the way that we want. Uh, Substack's a great partner. Um, but we are 100% subscriber-supported, and every subscriber is precious, and we have many thousands of them, which we're thrilled by. Um, and uh, as we were discussing before the show, um, big breakthrough for us this week as we became uh, the number one finance substack in the world, which is really astonishing and, and true validation of the work that we do. So um, couldn't be happier doing the work of our lives. And, and as you said, uh, always a great uh, time to talk with you, Zach, and happy to come back on the show uh, anytime uh, you'll have us. All right, buddy. Well, I'll take you up on that. Uh, so anyway, you guys, thank you so much for listening. And again, follow him at Doomberg T on Twitter. And uh, we will have him back on sooner rather than later. So thanks for joining us again. And we will see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.